Alrighty. Should be there. Good. Praise God. Welcome, everyone. It is a day of worship, isn't it? Worship our God and King, in spirit and in truth. Um, we're going to continue on here in, uh, in our uh, book of Isaiah. And uh, we are in chapter 15. Um, chapter 15 uh, is uh, the next few verses, the next few chapters, rather, um, deal with some pretty heavy stuff. Um, it's God doing what God does, being who God is. It's God in his sovereignty um, doing as he wills. And one of the things to keep in mind as we uh, go through these things is, you know, the people of these times, they each, each people group had their own gods, sometimes multiple gods. They were false gods, of course, just like we have today. Um, in the uh, New Testament, Paul calls them the, the demonic gods. They were demonic. These false gods that these people worship. And uh, keep in mind that one of the things that they would do is they would attribute their victories over other peoples and things like that to their false gods. They thought they were true. There was the God of the mountains, the God of the rivers, the God of the fish. There's the God of everything. They were everywhere. <laughs> they were polytheistic. But they were false gods nonetheless. And that's one of the things that, that God um, looks at and he detests. Because he is the only true God and there is no other. There's not one of many gods. There's only one God and he exists as he exists. He's revealed himself as he has revealed himself as he would have us know him. And not in accordance with the ways of the world and, and the pagans and all these other things. And so um, from chapter 13, uh, we saw that uh, God was definitely going to judge um, Israel for their rebellion for their doing that very thing, worshiping false gods, along with God. Um, so it wasn't as if they were just going after those other gods. They were trying to include uh, those other gods into the worship of God, the one true God. And God would have none of it. And they went from bad to worse in their apostasy. And that's the way that uh, God saw. And... So in chapter 14, we saw that God also gives them a reprieve, a, a moment of hope when he says, those instruments of judgment that I'm going to send against you, they are the ones that will pay for what they have, for what I've not told them to do. When they go beyond the hatred, that, and remember we spent a lot of time digging the, the idea out that, that God knows the intents of the heart. So everything that they did, they did it with an intent. God knows our thoughts. He knows what we're going to say before we say it. Um, that is a uh, kind of a spooky thing to think about. Because he knows those. And so he held them accountable. And in chapter 14, we saw that. We saw how the mighty who thought themselves really something um, were going to be cast down. And how the people would, uh, in, in turn, they would uh, mock those who thought themselves high and mighty. And that's still true today. The tyrants, the despots, Mao Zedong, um, Vladimir Lenin, Joseph Stalin, Pol Pot, um, Fidel Castro, um, Maduro down in Venezuela, and before him, uh, um, I can't remember what his, his, his name was, Hugo Chavez. All these Marxists, all these communists who deny they know that there is a God, but they deny God. They're not atheists. They are anti-theists. They just deny the existence of God. Well, guess what? Every single one of those knows today in their existence that there is a God. And as I'm fond of saying, you don't get into heaven by calling God a liar. And that's exactly what they've faced. That truth. They lied. They lied to the people. They caused people to stumble. They put their ideologies and their their uh, ideas of, of this worldly things in front of who God is. And so the people that surrounded the nation of Israel, although Israel was disobedient and rebellious, 
and worshipped false gods. They were idolatrous and adulterous. God used the people around them sometimes as judgments. But here we're going to see for the next several chapters, God calls out one people after another. And he calls them out in judgment. He says this is, uh, it starts with the, uh, um, the, we're going to get into a lot of the prophecy. It's God is prophetically speaking ahead of time what is going to happen and how he's going to do that and how he's going to exact his justice upon them. And so that's what we're going to be dealing with for the next several chapters. Um, it's a lot of different uh, uh, nations that are being called out. Moab is who we're looking at today. God judges Moab. And we're going to see that uh, um, he's going to next move on to Damascus. And after that, to Samaria. And after that, Ethiopia. And after that, Egypt. And after that, Babylon. And after that, Edom. And after that, Jerusalem. And if that's not enough, Tyre as well. They were all worshipers of false gods. And the people of Israel, the, the people of God, had become disobedient. And they more desired to be like the people around them than to be the people of God set apart. They wanted more to be like the world. And that's uh, not anything uh, that is foreign to our time. Right now as we speak, there's churches, so-called, that have tens of thousands of people that attend. And they call themselves churches. But they want to look more like the world. They have concerts going on. And they entertain the people. And they do that so they can draw people to themselves. And the people lack the word of God. If there are any of God's sheep there, the great shepherd's sheep, they're being starved to death. They're giving how to be better people, how to be, you know, all this uh, um, self-help stuff. I've heard some pretty blasphemous things from some of these preachers. And uh, that need not be repeated here. But that's what you have. They're going after other gods. They want to be more like the people. You see, their mentality is, well, you know, if we just uh, provide these things so we can draw people, then people will come and they'll fill the seats and they'll give their money and they'll do all this stuff. Never thinking what God actually says and thinks about this. They will be held accountable, just like these people will be. So we are in uh, Isaiah chapter 15. Um, these are some of the things that... Uh, um, that I see that are that are going on around our time, um, that are buying into all the stuff that's going on in the world. Some of them are moving towards this Marxism and communism. And the church, there's no place for that. Absolutely none. Zero. And I'm not just talking politically. I'm talking about spiritually. It's demonic. Um, and it's one of those things that we have to resist. And it's it's quickly moving all over the place. And it's infecting churches left and right. People moving more and more and more to the left. Why? Well, can cancel culture. Because of the ways of the world. Right now, as we speak in Washington, D.C., they're trying to pass laws. It's called the Equity Act. The Equality Act. Well, there's nothing equal about it. It's you will use the language we tell you to use, or you will be an outlaw. You will be a criminal. So I'm telling you this ahead of time, because if it passes, yeah, there's, there's a mark, there's a target on each and every one of us as Christians, if we hold to biblical truth. So if we call homosexuality a sin, we have a target. If we call lesbianism, which is part of homosexuality, if we call it what it is, sin, we have a target on us. If we call transgenderism in particular, we have a target on our head when we call it a perversion, a sickness. And these are the things that are trying to be passed in edicts. They're not laws. They're just passing edicts. And that's the way that things are moving. And um, we as the church must resist these things. And we have to determine now 
before it's too late. Or you're going to fall for it. I see one person after another falling for this stuff. Um, racial conciliation is another thing that is being just pushed out there. As I've said many, many times, and I've said it many, many times on Facebook, when we're talking about race, there is only one race, the human race. The Bible tells us that. God in the beginning made one man, and out of that one man, he made woman. And out of the male and the female, the genders that he assigned, that he determined and defined in his created order, man and woman, they make up the family. And um, this is what, when we hold to these truths and don't move from them, we will have a target on our head. It's just that simple. Um, there's one race. That's the human race. That's it. I may be a different color, but I'm not a different race. I'm not. The same race. Human race. That's how we should think biblically. We could get rid of all this stuff if people would just teach biblically what it is. Racism boomed in the 1800s, the late 1800s, with a, with a one singular book. The origin of the species. And I would I would tell you that if you've never really looked up the full title of that book, go look it up. The Origin of the Species. That's not the full title. There's a lot bigger title to that. And it has to do with racism. Go read it. I want you to go look at it. I don't want to tell you what it is. I know what that title is. Preached on it before here. But I want you to go look at it. It boomed and it made it easier because of that ideology, that godless ideology. So here in Isaiah 15, God is going to prophesy against Moab and uh, not Utah. But uh, he is going to prophesy against them. These uh, people that were the surrounding uh, peoples and nations around Israel. They were enemies. They were supposed to be cleared out. Now, Moab has a beginning, and we're going to read about that. We'll do a little bit of a history here. Who, who were the Moabites? We'll, we'll get into that in a minute. But let's read the uh, scripture real quick, and then we'll, uh, we'll continue on. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 15. The oracle concerning Moab. Surely in a night, Ar of Moab is devastated, ruined. Surely in a night, Kir of Moab is devastated and ruined. That's pretty fast. That's the idea. They have gone up to the temple uh, and to uh, Debon, even to the high places, to weep. Moab wails over Nebo and Mediba. Everyone's head is bald and every beard is cut off. In their streets, they have girded themselves with sackcloth. On their housetops and in their squares, everyone is wailing, dissolved in tears. Heshbon and Ilala also cry out. Their voice is heard all the way to Jehaz. Therefore, the armed men of Moab cry aloud. His soul trembles within him. My heart cries out for Moab. His fugitives are as far as Zor. And Eglath Shalishiah, for they go up to the ascent of Luhith weeping. Surely on the road to Oranaim they raise a cry of distress over their ruin. For the waters of Nimrim are desolate. Surely the grass is withered. Tender grass died out. There is no green thing. Therefore, the abundance which they have acquired and stored up, they carry off over the brook to Arabim. For the cry of distress has gone around the territory of Moab. It will, excuse me, it wails, goes, its wail goes as far as Eglium, and in its wailing even to Beer Elim. For the waters of Dimon are full of blood. Surely I will bring added woes upon Dimon, a lion upon the fugitives of Moab, 
and upon the remnant of the land. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace. Even in judgment, you show and display your goodness and your grace. We thank you, Lord, for um, being the God who has revealed himself and who has shown himself holy and righteous and just. Thank you, Lord, for all these things. When we think about uh, the judgments of our God, and you act as um, as God, as judge. You are the judge of all the earth. It is all yours. They were all made by you. You simply spoke them into existence, and they were. And they are, and they exist today, and we exist upon this earth, upon the face of the earth. And you are the one who is in control of all these things. Not one molecule or atom um, is separate from what it is that you have decreed. These things are frightening for those who are uh, denying you, for those who resist you, for those who will not come, for those who look upon the created order and can children can see that it had to have been created by a mighty God. And yet, adults, men, women deny the very existence of this creator. Lord, we thank you that you have shown yourself to us and made us to know We are sinners. We've sinned against the holy and righteous God. And that you have sent your son. And he has paid that price on the cross. And he died and shed his blood for us. And that he was buried and that he rose again on the third day in accordance with scripture. Thank you, Lord, that that judgment was put upon him, placed upon him. For those who will come and receive him as Lord and Savior. As a forgiver of the sins that are many, and as a redeemer. Thank you, Lord, for all these things and more. Pray that you would open up our eyes, ears, minds, and hearts to these truths as uh, we read and continue to look deeper into these things. Um, Father, thank you that you're good. Thank you for your everlasting, merciful, loving kindness with which you love us. Remember us, O Lord, in your kindness and in your mercy. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. So verse 1, the oracle concerning Moab. This is a word that is spoken to uh, through Isaiah. And he's speaking about these different different countries, these different peoples. And even though they had different gods that they attributed their their success and their their, uh, um, prosperity and all these other things, um, God is the only God that there is. There is no other God. There's only one God. That's it. God is uh, said and understood by... Uh, theologians, and as we see in, in Scripture, God is what is known as omniscient. It means he's, He knows everything there is to know. He's all-known. And in His Word, and when we get to there in Isaiah, in the 43, 44, 45, 46, He says, I know of no other God. And if He knows everything that there is to know, and he knows of no other God, then guess what? There is no other God. There's only one. He and he alone is God, and there is no other. Um, And this is the God that we have to deal with. And so the people of that time, even though they had other gods, they knew that Israel had a God as well. But he was an invisible God. Right? And He didn't have any representation except for his people. There was no idol to worship. There wasn't supposed to be any. But they had broken that. And the oracle that is speaking against these people, some people may say, well, you know, this is uh, unfair of God to do this. He wasn't their God. In their horizontal and man-made thinking, they may think, But what they didn't understand and what people don't understand today is there is only one God. He is the creator and he has the right. He has the right to do with his creation as he pleases. He has the right to judge. It's his prerogative. And it's good. It's good that he should. He is the the God alone who has made uh, 
the, the heavens and the earth. And so it belongs to him. And he can do with it as he pleases. And so when he judges all the people of the earth, it's good. And it's right. He's faithful in doing that and thank God for that. Um, the oracle against the judgment of Moab was, was probably delivered around the time of Sar Sargon's defeat of Moab in 715 B.C. That's the time frame. And it's concerned with Moab's distress. The response of Moab's distress is in chapter 16, and we'll get to that, um, Lord willing, next week. It says, Surely in a night, Ar of Moab is devastated and ruined. Surely in a night, Kir and Moab is devastated and ruined. That speaks of a real quick, fast judgment. It's going to be ruined. It's going to be devastated. The words there are devastated and ruined. <laughs> That's what they mean. They're going to first be demolished, and then they're going to be ruined. They're not going to have any use. Uh, Moab was a nation of the east uh, of, the, of the Dead Sea between the Ammonites and the Edomites. Her relations with Judah were oftentimes, and most of the time, tense. Now, who were the Moabites anyway? Well, the Moabites, uh, this is a little history time. The, the Moabites were a tribe descended from Moab. And if you remember the story in, the, in Genesis 19, and I've got that in the bulletin for you to study, um, you see right on, the, right on the heels of the destruction of another city, two other cities, Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, the Moabites were born out of that, on the heels of that, judgment. The Moabites were, were the son, Moab was the son of Lot. He was born of an incestuous relationship with his oldest daughter. Um, that is, that is uh, um, Lot. If you remember the story from Genesis, it's a story that is disturbing. It's a story of drunkenness. It's a story of faithlessness. It's a story of not understanding who God is. And that he keeps his promise. The daughters saw the destruction of these two cities. And it happened fairly instantaneously. Um, watch some uh, documentaries on, on different uh, ideas of what happened in that. that uh, uh, the, those destructions of those cities. And scientifically it, uh, it is uh, the idea of it was almost like a nuclear blast. But it was natural, or it was supernatural. The Bible tells us that fire from heaven came down and just totally destroyed the people and the land. And in those areas, there's, there's areas where there's just nothing but burnt, scorched, scorched earth. Um, and on the heels of that, the daughters, they see this devastation. They must think it's like the end of the world, that all the men everywhere, or something, that's the best thing we can guess. But they get their dad drunk and, and from that incestuous relationship, Moab is born. That's who the Moabites, that's where they come from. Um, he has this incestuous relationship with his oldest daughter. Um, the cradle of this tribe on the southern border of the Dead Sea, they gradually spread over the region um, on the east of Jordan. Shortly before the Exodus, the warlike Amorites crossed the Jordan under the uh, Sihon, their king, and drove the Moabites out of the region between Arnon River Valley and uh, the Jabbok River and occupied it, making Heshbaron their capital. The Moabites were then confined to the territory to the south of the Arnon Valley. So that's who the Moabites are. <clears throat> the Moabites, again, we're like the other people, and they worship false gods. And when you worship a false god, God is not pleased. And he must judge. So when you worship false god, you have to pay the price. And that was the price that they were going to pay. And so as it says here in, in Scripture, that their uh, cities are going to be destroyed and devastated, ruined, um, Ar and Kerr, their city of Ar was on the Arnon River, and Kerr was the capital of Moab. By the way, um, 
they, when they go up uh, uh, to the temple, one of the things uh, the god of the Moabs was Chemosh. Chemosh was the god of the Moabites. Um, scripture calls him the abomination of Moab. Uh, and unfortunately, Chemosh worship was introduced into the Israelite culture by King Solomon. You remember, you know, the Moabites weren't uh, all bad. We know one that came from Moab. I'll give you a hint. She's called the Moabitess. Yeah. Yeah. And it's she's in the lineage of Jesus. Um, but Solomon married and intermarried with these women that he wasn't supposed to. He had, uh, who had wives from other cultures and turned his heart to other gods as he grew older. And Chemosh was one of the gods that they worshipped and was introduced. The cult of Chemosh was eventually destroyed in Judah by King Josiah. One of the things that uh, Chemosh was, he's also the god of, of uh, the rivers or the god of the fish. And it's interesting that these cities are right there by the rivers. Um, the meaning of the name Chemosh is not understood, though some scholars believe it may have meant destroyer or subduer. Sounds like another enemy, doesn't it? That we should all be familiar with. Chemosh was also seen as a fish god. He was the national deity of the Moabites and the Ammonites. And according to a Moab stone, the Mishas uh, Stel, Chemosh was associated with the goddess Ashtoreth. Another false god worshipped by wayward Israelites. Chemosh is thought to have been a, a deity similar to Baal. And there is also evidence, both from the Moabite stone and from scripture, that Chemosh may have been the same deity as the Ammonite. Moloch, or Molech. These are the ones, the gods, these false gods, these demon gods, who the people would offer their children. They would offer their children to the to these false demonic gods. It's as if these demonic gods have a thirst for the blood of children. And we're no different today in America and in the world. With the murdering of babies in the womb. Offering that blood to the gods, these demonic gods. And there are those who call evil good, say it's a right. It's a good thing because it'll keep the population down, you see, because we're overpopulating and it needs to be brought down because God isn't big enough and most of them don't believe in God. So God isn't big enough to control all that and to keep it all under control, under his control. These are the same gods. They're nothing new. They're just called by a different name. That's all. And it's the same kind of idea. At least Chemosh and Moloch uh, were two manifestations of the same false god. King Solomon built high places in both to both gods in the same location, the mountain east of Jerusalem. The worship of Chemosh was truly an abomination. One place in scripture records Chemosh demanding human sacrifice, just as I just said. And in the days of Judah, King uh, Judah's king Jehoram, the king of Moab, faced military defeat and the Moabite ruler took his firstborn son, who was to succeed him as king, and offered him as a sacrifice on the city wall. That's the kind of gods that they believed in. Chemosh also features in uh, John Milton's epic poem, Paradise Lost. In a passage about false god, Milton refers to Chemosh as a god whom the Israelites worshipped with lustful orgies and wanton rites. And calls Chemosh the obscene dread of Moab's son. Milton was also mentions King Josiah, who drove them thence to hell by abolishing the practice of Chemosh, the worship, the Chemosh worship in Israel. That's who the god of the Moabites was, and that's who the Moabite people were. They worshiped this false god, and they did unspeakable things. So their cities are going to be destroyed. Verse 2 says they have gone up to the temple and to Dibon. That's the purpose of that temple, is to worship this false god, to offer their children, to commit 
immoral, sexually immoral acts as a sacrifice. Cult prostitutes and the like were part of the practice. It says uh, Moab's whales over Nebo and uh, Madiba, more of their cities. Everyone's head is bald and every beard is cut off. What is that about? That was a sign. When men cut off their head and shaved their head and shaved their beards, it was a sign of mourning, a sign of grief, extreme grief and mourning. Um, the customs of mourning, including the cutting of the hair and shaving. Verse 3 says, In their streets they have girded themselves with sackcloth on their housetops. And sackcloth, again, is something that you uh, that you put on when you're grieving. Many times the prophets would come and, and say something and, and the king would, would rip his clothes and put on sackcloth and dust and he would lament. This was part of what uh, took place. And this is part of the same customs that these people did. As they saw their, as they're going to see their city destroyed, they're going to mourn and grieve. There's nothing that they can do about it. It's as if they're watching themselves die. They have no control. In their streets, <clears throat> verse 3, they have girded themselves with sackcloth on their housetops and in their squares. Everyone is wailing, dissolved in tears. Look at the, the, the language that he's used, this, this hyperbole that he's using. Yeah, they're going to be shedding tears as if to, to, to dissolve them. That's a lot of lament. That's a lot of shedding of tears. And that's what they're going to see. Destruction. And there's nothing that they can do. They're powerless. Verse 4 says, Heshbon and Aliale also cry out. Their voice is heard all the way to Jahaz. Therefore the armed men of Moab cry aloud. Now is this typical of armed men? Because the crying aloud here is not... Uh, not the uh, cry of a warrior. <laughs> this is the cry of somebody who knows that they're about to be defeated. The cry of no! And whoa! Not the cry of a warrior. They're crying aloud. All these armed men of Moab. Listen, it says their soul trembles within them. They're not just scared to the point of trembling, it's deep within. Their soul is trembling within them because they see this destruction coming and they have no hope. Verse 5, my heart cries out for Moab. Now whether this is the heart of the prophet or the heart of God, it speaks. God takes no, um, he takes no joy in the destruction of the wicked. He doesn't. This is God's heart. My heart cries out for Moab. It speaks of God's love and God's mercy, and God's, God's grace here. It says, my heart cries out for Moab. His fugitives are as far as Zor. And Zor is the place where um, Lot was going to uh, try to get to on the heels of Sodom and Gomorrah and their destruction. It says it's their, their, their cries, the fugitives are, are, are as far as there. Zor and Egleth Shilisha. For they go up to the ascent of Luhith weeping. They're driven from their homes. They're driven from their, their uh, place of existence. They're driven from their place where they make a living. They're driven from those places. And they're driven to these faraway places. And all the way, the idea is they're in distress entirely. And there is no relief. It continues. Surely on the road to um, Oronaim, they raise a cry of distress over their ruin. They raise a cry of distress over their ruin. Verse 6 says, For the waters of Nimrim are desolate. There's not even a place to go get drink. So, so 
So great is the destruction that God is going to unleash on them. Surely the grass is withered and the tender grass died out. There is no green thing. These are harsh things to think about. When you think about the total devastation and destruction. God is going to utterly destroy them. Judge them. In his holiness and in his righteousness. Because think of the practices. And, and before we think uh, um, too much about. Well you know I don't know if this, this doesn't. This just sounds so harsh. Like such a harsh God. No it is not. We wouldn't think that of a, of a judge. Who judged a mass murderer. Justly to execute him once found guilty. We wouldn't think that would be harsh of him. And if we do, then there's something wrong with us. Our thinking is not right. Our views are not correct. Because God, the reason that he instituted the, the um, type of punishment, corporate punishment that he instituted to do away with the evil. He said do this. When they break these laws. And you're to stone them. And you're to do these other things. Why? For the purpose of getting rid of the evil from among you. That's the purpose. It's, it's for justice sake. And to remove that evil from among you. You never have to worry about it again. It is dealt with once for all. And then. That person that is put to death in that sense. Then goes on to another judgment. A rightful judgment before Almighty God. This is the idea that God is pouring out upon them. Here it also says in this notation that Isaiah has noticeably more sympathy for Moab, Ruth's homeland, than for the other nations. Because um, remember that Lot was part of, he was uh, um, Abraham's nephew. He was part of their family, part of the, their people. They were a Semitic type people. In spite of the way that he came about, O Moab. The waters are desolate. The grass is withered. The tender grass is dried out. There's no green thing. That's like walking through the desert. In the mid midst of summer. Hoping to find something and there's nothing. It's just desolate. Is that a bummer enough yet? It continues. It continues. Therefore, the abundance which they have acquired and are stored up, they carry off over the brook of Arabim. For their cries of distress have gone out around the territory of Moab. Its wall goes as far as Eglium, and its wailing even to Beer Elim, for the waters of Dimon are full of blood. The destruction is going to be such that that uh, this is idea of the water um, is going to have blood. It's going to be contaminated. You see the distress that they're having to deal with? This is the judgment that is going to be coming. And we're not even, we just barely begun. We got a whole nother chapter that just deals with Moab. He says uh, in finishing up here in verse, uh, verse 9, he says, Surely I will bring added woes. If that wasn't enough for you, if that hasn't depressed you enough yet, God says through the prophet Isaiah, surely I will bring added woes to you. Everything that I've said so far, there's going to be more added. A lion upon the fugitives of Moab, upon the remnant of the land. If anyone is left over, it's the idea of um, imagine yourself trying to defend, trying to defend yourself Against a lion that shows up out of nowhere. That's the idea. There's more to come. The lion. The fugitives go from trouble to trouble. They go out of the frying pan and into the fire. God is going to hold them accountable. Now God. Being God and being who he is. If you remember from. Uh, the beginning of, of, of uh, chapter 14. God uses his prerogative. It's his right. It's his right to do as he pleases. And it's his right and his, it's his uh, um, prerogative to, to judge all the peoples of the earth. And it's right and it's good. Because he is the one who made all these things. And so when he pours out his justice, 
it's just. It's just. No matter how we wrestle with it, and sometimes you do when you start reading some of these things, there have been those places where you come across and you think to yourself and you wrestle within yourself, man, this just doesn't sound fair. This sounds horrible. But ultimately, we have to come to the understanding that it is good. It is just. It is right. Because when God judges, He does so justly. God will never be an unjust God. Everything that He does with His justice is just. It's good and it's right. Now, the people in their false worship of the demonic gods, what were they doing ultimately? They were mocking God. Mocking God never works out well for anyone. Does it? Why? Well, Paul tells us in uh, in Galatians. He says, do not be deceived. Uh, in uh, Galatians 6, uh, 7 through 10, he says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. People think that they get away with it right now. Because God doesn't swiftly take them out. God is not mocked, Paul says. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. You worship false gods. When you come to deal with the God, the true God of the universe, you pay the price. Right? For whatever a man sows, this um, he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. Remember what Jesus said about the flesh. The flesh profits what? Zero. Nothing. The flesh profits nothing. And apart from him, you can do nothing. Right? Zero. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. God will save the Israelites in the midst of all that destruction that's going on around them. He will always save a remnant for himself. And he will always bring the people that he has chosen to bring, the remnant, as it were. He will bring them to himself. And they will be his and they will worship God. So he says this, he says, if you reap from the flesh, you'll reap corruption. But if you uh, sow to the spirit, you will reap eternal life. So Paul says, let us not lose heart in doing good. For in due time, we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people and especially to those who are the household of faith. The people at that time mocked God in their worshiping of their false gods. As did the Israelites. That's why God held them accountable first, because judgment begins in the house of God. And offending the one true God of the universe never ends well for those who mock God, for those who jest at God, for those who defy God, for those who deny God. For those who will not bow before God. Here. That's the thing about the gospel. Is we are given the opportunity on this side. When it says that we will reap eternal life. We reap eternal life if we sow to the spirit. We reap eternal life on this side of eternity. Not on that side. Yes, we will have eternity there. We will have eternal life. But that's given to us now. And it's given to us through Jesus Christ. Through God the Son from all eternity. Who came and took on a body of flesh like ours. And who lived that perfect life. And who was mocked. On the night it was betrayed. He was falsely accused. He was beaten. He was convicted. He was beaten. He was spit upon. He was mocked. This perfect, the only perfect human that's ever lived. He was both human and deity. Simultaneously. He lacked nothing. He lived this perfect life. 
he was punished. And it pleased God to crush him, says in Isaiah. It pleased God. Why? Because of what it would reap. He was sowing to the Spirit. And what he was sowing to the Spirit, and what did it reap? Eternal life for you and for me. If we receive him, if we trust in his sacrifice, if we believe that that was enough. As I said yesterday during the... uh, um, during our celebration of Stephen's life, that Jesus plus anything sends us to hell because we're not trusting in Jesus Christ. If we're trusting in, in uh, Jesus plus some organization, some other book, some other prophet, some other thing, that will not save. Only Jesus dying on the cross, receiving that sacrifice of the perfect Lamb of God. That is the only sacrifice that is acceptable to God. And any worship outside of the vehicle of Jesus Christ is unacceptable to God. Only that which is through Jesus. Jesus is the remedy. Repentance and admittance of our guilt before Him in humility is the solution. When we go to Him, trust Him. God, I'm guilty. God, I'm a sinner. God, I know that Jesus, your word says Jesus died on the cross for my sin. I receive that. I believe that. Please forgive me of my sin. Repentance and admittance of our guilt and humility. When we, when this Holy Spirit comes upon us to reveal our sin to us, he convicts us. And we come face to face with who we really are. We're pretty horrible. I'm looking at a pretty horrible bunch. But I looked at myself in the mirror first this morning. And that was even more horrific. But praise God for His grace. Because what I can't see with my physical eyes, God can through His spiritual eyes. And He sees me covered in the righteousness of Christ, because I've received Him. He is the remedy to all of these problems. I know this was kind of heavy, and and it's going to be a little bit heavy for the next few chapters, but that's just the way this, this unfolds. But here's the good news. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. That's what He sent Him for. And uh, Christmas, at the time, we spent a little bit of time thinking about the name of Jesus and the, what was prophesied by the angel. He will come and he will save his people from what? From their sin. They couldn't see it. They couldn't understand it. They couldn't grasp it. They have no clue. They have no idea. They had their traditions and they believed in those. Jesus didn't fit them. He didn't fit their tradition. He didn't fit what they thought they understood. He didn't fit any of those things. He hung out with sinners. He hung out with with prostitutes and with thieves. He hung out with sinners. Why? He said, I did not come to save the righteous. The righteous need no Savior. I came to seek and save that which is lost. If you're lost today, would you be found? Run to Him. Turn to Him. Trust in Him. Receive Him. He is the remedy to all of these things. The eternal life that God offers in His Son, this is forgiveness, and it is found only in Jesus Christ and no other. No institution. No tradition. No other books. Simply in Jesus Christ. That's where forgiveness is found. And you know what? When you are forgiven and you know that you're forgiven, you have a boldness that you've never had before. You have a strength that you can't understand. You have a desire that changes everything because you're forgiven. And when you know it, you don't care what anybody thinks. You don't care because you have been found. You're no longer lost. You have been made new. Forgiveness is found only in Jesus. And as long as there is breath in our lungs, there is hope for redemption. There is hope 
for forgiveness. There is hope. Why? Jesus said it himself. For with God all things are possible. Even a wretch like me. Even a wretch like you. But you don't know what I've been guilty of. God does. And he still chooses. God knew what I was guilty of. He knew what I would be guilty of. And he still chose. There's no way you can express how awesome it is to know that you're forgiven and redeemed by His sacrifice. This is the answer to all of these things. But God will judge. And He will judge again. When Jesus comes, it's not ugly yet. It's going to get ugly. Today is the day of salvation. Turn to Him. Trust in Him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your goodness and your grace. I thank you for your Son, Jesus, the Christ, the Son of the living God who came into the world to save his people from his sin, from our sin. Lord, I thank you and I praise you and I bless you. You are good. Thank you for the fact that he went to the cross willingly. Despising the shame, he went. And he submitted himself and he humbled himself, even to the point of death, even death on a cross. And he was buried as the scriptures proclaim. But oh, that grave couldn't hold him. And oh, death couldn't handle him. And on the third day, he rose again. Hallelujah. And I thank you for that resurrection, that eternal life that we can enjoy on this side. If we'll only humble ourselves and pray. And turn from our wicked ways. And cry upon the living God. Cry to Him for forgiveness and redemption. Cry to Him to remove the stain of sin from us. Lord, I thank You for Your goodness and Your grace. Apply these things to us, O Lord. Save as only You can by Your Spirit to cause people to be born again as only You can. We ask it, Lord, in the name that is above all names. In the only name given under heaven by which men must be saved. In the name of Yeshua. The name of Jesus. Jesus. The King of kings and the Lord of lords. Thank you Lord for everything in Jesus holy name. Amen.